uh, we see in this, uh, in this passage uh, the divine authority, uh, the heavenly authority of Jesus. It's not clicking, Ben. So sorry. Hold on, guys. Yeah. Jesus never had to contend with any of this kind of stuff, <laughs> did he? All right. Ben, you're going to have to really listen to the sermon because I'm going to need you to click. Are you ready? Let's do, let's do, let's do this, mate. All right. So, uh, by the way, this is a real quick anecdote. The church I pastored in America, um, so it was, it, was a, it was a fairly large church, and so like the, the audio video stuff was in the back, and there was about four guys who were running all that stuff every Sunday. And one year, I kid you not, for their budget, um, when I looked at the audio video budget, they had asked for a refrigerator and a small grill. And uh, that's when I knew that none of those guys actually ever listened to my sermons. But they had the best food cooking back there. So, yeah, yeah, it's a true story. Uh, so, Ben, if you get anything on the grill back there, let us know, and, uh, and we'll eat it with you. Um, the, the authority, that's a true story, the, the authority of, uh, of Jesus. And so um, we're going to look at two, two themes here, and that is authority and miracles. And it's important that we have a biblical understanding of those two truths because those are going to be a running theme in the Gospel of Mark, authority and miracles. And so uh, here's just kind of a, kind of a stripped-down uh, definition of authority. Authority, the, the power, ability, and right to give orders, make decisions, and require obedience. All right, just, just kind of a bare-bones definition scripturally of authority. Authority is someone who is in a place of power. They have the ability, right? It's not power with lack of ability is usually a disaster. So they have power and ability and right, which, which means that there, there's a sense of ordination upon them. They, they have the right. Uh, uh, soon we'll, we'll see a coronation in our country, right? And so uh, there's this sense of the, the power, the ability, but then the, the right, the coronation to do what? Well, to, we, to give orders, right? To make decisions and then to ask for, in fact, to require obedience. And so when we use this word authority... Uh, in reference to Jesus, we're saying that Jesus um, is the one. He, he is the, the second person of the Godhead, and he has the power and the ability to, and the right to give orders, to make decisions, and because he is Lord, to require obedience. All right? So that's our working definition of authority. Now, uh, let's look at a, a working definition of a miracle, right? Uh, here's, and this one, um, we're going to break down in chunks. It's, it's a little meatier, so we're going to work through it. But this is a definition scripturally of a miracle. It's an extraordinary act or event which involves a direct and powerful action of God transcending the ordinary laws of nature and defying common expectations of behavior. Now, I realize that that's a mouthful, so let's, let's, let's take a look. First of all, it's extraordinary, right? It, it, it's not common. It's uncommon, right? It's uh, miracles in the biblical sense are not ordinary. They're, they're not things that we necessarily experience day in and day out. Now, I understand when we say, you know, it's just a miracle. I took my next breath. Well, that's not a miracle. Um, that, that, that's something God gave you. 
Um, and, but it's not a miracle. Um, um, uh, everyone breathes, right? Atheists breathe. And so that's not, we don't mean it in that way. We, it, the Bible actually has a very specific definition, right? A miracle would be if you could breathe underwater, right? Because that's not normal. True? Unless you're a fish or have scuba gear, right? And, and so do you see the difference? To say, oh, the, the Lord gave me my, my next breath. Sure he did, but it wasn't miraculous. If you're breathing underwater, that's miraculous because it's, it's extraordinary, right? It's an extraordinary act or event which involves direct and powerful action of God. It's God works directly in a circumstance. And then watch this. It transcends the ordinary law of nature defying the common expectations of behavior. So let me give you an example. Uh, water turning into wine. Is that normal? Who thinks no? Raise your hand. Who thinks yes? Raise your hand. Okay. The answer is yes. Water becoming wine is perfectly normal, right? There are lakes and rivers all over our planet. The sun shines. That water vapor evaporates. It goes up into clouds. The clouds then get to a point where they're oversaturated with moisture and rain falls out of the clouds. Water falls out. That water falls on a vineyard. That water waters seed. No, stay with me. This is true, right? Look, can you grow grapes without water? Water eventually, in that context, becomes wine. It's the same principle of a, a, a brown cow eats green grass, which makes white milk, which we add something, it becomes chocolate milk. Amen? <laughs> right? Those things happen all the time. And so water does make grapes grow. I'm not being cheeky here. And then the grapes produce juice, which is fermented into wine. That's normal. Taking a glass of water and instantly turning it into wine is miraculous. It's ordinary for rainwater to provide for grapevines that make wine. That's ordinary. It's extraordinary for it to be on command. That makes sense. And, and so what we see is it therefore requires direct and powerful action of God, and it defies the common expectations. I expect grapes in a vineyard to become wine. I don't expect this glass of water to become wine by the end of my sermon. Okay, And so that's what we mean by a miracle. All right, stay with me. This is all kind of set up for then what we're going to see in the text. Now, we're going to see a lot about healings and and what that looks like. And so let's be reminded of what healing looks like in Scripture, right? Biblical healings, all right? And we're going to see this throughout from from Genesis to Revelation, and particularly in, in the ministry of Jesus and the Apostles, Uh, And in the Old Testament prophets, this is what we see as related to healings. Um, The miraculous healing is instant. Jesus said what? He said, get up, take up your mat and walk. And and what did the man instantly do? He instantly did it. Right? Jesus, uh, one story says in the Gospels, he, he, he spits in the ground, makes mud, puts it on a blind man's eyes, and instantly the man can see. Right? And so a biblical miracle is instant. Secondly, a biblical miracle is verifiable. Right? It's verifiable. What does Jesus tell the man who's healed of leprosy? 
He says, now you need to go and have it verified. Right? I need you to go and the priest know exactly what to do to verify that you have been healed of leprosy. And so uh, there, there's no shadow of doubt in Scripture when someone is healed. It is verifiable. Uh, one minute you can't walk and the next minute you can. That's verifiable. Do, do you remember uh, the, the man who was born blind and, uh, and the disciples asked him, who sinned, his mother or his father? And Jesus said, no, this, is, this has happened that God might be glorified. Jesus heals the man. He can now see. And then when he goes before, stay with me, when he goes before the Jewish leaders, if you'll remember, who do they call upon? They ask for his parents to verify that he was really born blind. Yeah? And, and so in Scripture, a miracle is instant, it's verifiable, it's permanent. We never see in Scripture where all of a sudden someone falls back into blindness or they fall back into leprosy, right? Uh, every indication in Scripture is when someone is healed, it is permanent. They are healed uh, for good. Um, uh, it's accessible. And what I mean by accessible is... Every, it says everyone from the surrounding towns and villages came, right? It wasn't a select crew. It wasn't a ticketed event, right? Everyone, and how long did Jesus stay? Well, the, the scripture indicates he stayed until the job was done, right? It, he stayed until the job was done. It was accessible to all. And then, again, not to be cheeky, but in the day we live, it's important to remind ourselves it was always free, it was always free. And in fact, uh, when Peter and John, in, in the beginning of the book of Acts, when they go to the temple and they see a beggar, and the beggar says, you know, do you have any money? And what do they say? We're broke just like you, mate. Like, they say, silver and gold, we have none. But what we do have in the name of Jesus, take up your mat and what? Walk. They were just as broke as the beggar. They said, we don't have any money, right? Jesus never asked for an offering he never sold a DVD, right? And, and so I'm, I'm not trying to be cheeky, but I'm just saying we've we got to remember, like, miracles are real. Amen, church? But they need to be defined by Scripture and not by a man who just bought his third private jet. Yeah? And, and so Scripture defines for us what is happening. One last thing in miracles, and then we'll, uh, we're going to crack on into the text. Um, so one of the... One of the, one of the Number one questions I've got by, by believers, but particularly unbelievers, is why do miracles not happen like they did in the Bible? Is that a good question? That's a great question. I would love to walk on water. I was in Liverpool this week, and it was pouring rain, and my shoes were not waterproof. I would have appreciated, like, some miracle, right? Why doesn't God do these things? And so I drew this out by hand, and this is what I'll share often with unbelievers, but I think it's just as helpful for us as believers, all right? And, and this is a timeline of the Bible. And if you've ever read through the entire Bible, which I hope you have, maybe Bible in a year or something like that, okay? Here's what we forget as Christians. We forget sometimes that, by, that, that miracles actually don't jump off of every page in the Scripture. And in fact, when you're reading through the Bible, you will read through long sections, I mean books, weeks of Scripture where there are no miracles, Right, And sometimes I can forget that. And so this timeline is going to help us. Now, um, uh, we're going to start in Genesis over on the left. Now, the flat line is miracles. All right? That's miracles. 
So it's not like no miracles blip. It's not like a heart monitor, okay? So in fact, the first miracle in the Bible is Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And by the way, I was, I was in a, de- a debate a couple years ago here in Birmingham. I was asked to participate in uh, with, with some Christian guys, and I was the only Christian on the platform who believed that Genesis 1-11 through were history. And, and so um, uh, we believe that. Amen? Like, Adam was a real person. Someone on, someone on the panel who was from Oxford in a very nice accent looked at me and said, um, certainly you don't believe Adam and Eve are real. And I said, yeah, of course I do. And they said, how could you? And I said, do you believe, do you believe in the Virgin Mary? And the professor from Oxford on the panel said, of course I do. And I said, do you believe in Mary's mom? said, yeah. And I said, what about, what about the grandmother? And he said, yeah. And I said, so, so then here's my question for you to answer is, at what point in the genealogy do the real people become pretend people? Because I don't know how it works at Oxford, but back where I'm from in America, real people have real sex and make real babies. Amen? Okay, we'll have a class about that later. There seems doubt. Some of you guys have been to Oxford? Like, I don't know how it worked like, right? So imaginary people don't have real children, right? So we believe Genesis 1-1 is real. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a miracle, right? Now, as you read through Genesis, all of a sudden, the miracles kind of fade away, right? And then God sends Moses. And when you read through the life of Moses, now miracles become normative. They happen all the time in the life of Moses. When you read through the life of Moses, and then when you see God's people going into the promised land with Jericho, uh, you, you know, all of those things, miracles in that stage become normative. And then you'll see them kind of drop off again. You're, you're now, like, you, you begin to read, and, and they become a bit, they're still there in drips, but read through the life of King David. After David and Goliath, really, not a, not a lot of any miracles, practically None. You get to Solomon. There's really none. In fact, you, you get into the kings, into the judges, and they're just gone, right? And then all of a sudden, you have Elijah and Elijah, and all of a sudden, miracles become normative again. Now, they're always there. They're always there, but they become normal, and all of a sudden, Elijah's doing things that just are not normal, and then they, they kind of quiet down a bit. They're, they're always there, but then they become normative again with Jesus and the apostles, right? Which is what we see here. You read through Acts, and like I'm like Sue. Like I read Acts, and I'm like, yeah, I, I want that. Like, Lord, if what's there, like I want that, right? Give us that, Lord. And so we get taste of it. But but then it comes down again, and now you say, I'll put the word now. That's where we're living now. So let me be crystal clear. I believe miracles happen all the time. I mean, like as we just defined it, we have a God of the miraculous. Amen, church? But it's not normative. Some, some of you know my story. I mean, my niece only has one leg and no fingers. We knew that before she was born. And we begged the Lord for a miracle. We cried and pleaded with the Lord. Our like our family fasted and prayed and we called out to the Lord, like, Lord, please let Hannah be born with, with two legs and all her fingers. And, 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 and I was there at the hospital when she was delivered and, 
And when I held her and she just had the one leg and no fingers. And we praised Jesus and we, we sang his glory. And she is amazing. She's now 25, graduated university. She works at a, I don't know what it's called, but she works at an outdoor center where she teaches people how to climb trees and do rock climbing. And she has way too many boyfriends. And Uncle Kenny has been clear about that. It's the world we live in today. Miracles happen. And I believe if God wanted to have miraculously healed her, he would have. But also know God has done things in her life that I wonder would he have been able to do if she wasn't born just the perfect way she was. Are you with me? And that's where we live now. And we live in this, this time and season where it's hard because God does do the miraculous and we pray and we know he can, but sometimes in his sovereignty he doesn't. But it's exactly what Andy reminded the children. Whatever he does is far better. Whatever he does is far better. And I remember holding Hannah in the hospital and reading scripture over her and crying and just saying, Lord, I choose to believe this is better. I choose to believe everything in me says it's not, but I'm going to choose to believe this is better. And that's tough. And so that's where we live. And the Bible says there's a time coming in the book of Revelation where miracles will be normative again. And then we get to the end and it, it ends like it begins. And that's with Jesus and the miraculous. I, I hope that's helpful. So what are the purpose of miracles in Scripture then? The purpose of miracles then are, are always connected to the message. They're always connected to the message and to the messenger. So um, uh, there are right now about 6,000 religions in the world, give or take. About 6,000 religions in the world. There are loads of people. All you have to do is go online. Uh, there are thousands of people who claim to be the Messiah who claimed to be Jesus. I saw a documentary recently about a Russian Messiah, and he dresses in white clothes with a red sash. Have you seen that? And they, and they all live in this community out in the rural part of Russia, and they believe he's the Messiah. Um, Igor the Messiah, I think was his name, or something like that, right? So here's the question. How do we know? How do we know if someone is really a messenger from God? And God has an answer to that in Scripture, and it is signs and wonders, the miraculous. So uh, let me give us some examples. So um, in a, uh, we'll have to go back, um, Ben. Yep, there we go. Thank you. So here's an example from, uh, from Exodus. You have Moses and Aaron, and, uh, and they're going to set God's people free from Egypt. Look what it says. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. So the messengers come with a message. So the Lord said, here's the message, tell them. Now look what happens. He also performed the signs before the people and they believed. Now here's what's interesting. In Hebrew, the word believe is connected to the message. Yeah? And, and, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down in worship. There are signs and wonders, and when they see the signs and wonders, they believe the message. Does that make sense? They've been in slavery for 400 years, and this guy shows up who is a murderer and, and stutters, the Bible says, and he's got his brother. 
It sounds like it sounds like a con already, does it not? Right? It sounds like snake oil salesman. And these two guys show up. One's a murderer who stutters. The other is his brother. And they say, God has come to tell us he wants to set you free. Would it, would it be fair to say we're not sure if that's right? And so what does the Lord do? Look what it says. And he performed signs before the people and they believed. The miraculous was tied to the message. All right. Uh, here's, here's an example from Jesus. And, and we're, we see it this morning, right? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, right? My message is true. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and walk, right? How do we know Jesus is the Messiah? We know Jesus is the Messiah because he healed every single person in the village. I mean, every single person was healed, and it, and it was instant, and it was permanent, and it was verified, and it was free, and Jesus did it, and it was accessible. And so we know, yes, this is the Son of God, all right? And then we see it in the life of, of Paul and, uh, and the apostles. And so uh, Acts would, uh, would say this. So Paul and Barnabas, this is an Iconium, an Iconium. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there in Iconium speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders, right? Uh, you, you never see in Scripture, all right, and from Old Testament, you'll never see miracles divorced from message. Let me say that again. You never see miracles divorced from message, right? And, and so the message always precedes the miracles, right? There's the message, the gospel is preached, and then to confirm to the audience, no, I really, this really is a word from God, the miraculous takes place, all right? And, and so when you have miraculous with no message, it, it doesn't follow a scriptural kind of dynamic, right? So what we see scripture is message, miracle, message, miracle. Uh, because here's the truth. Did, did a lot of people experience miracles who rejected Jesus? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, Jesus says, do you know what? If I would have done the miracles in, in, in that city that I did in that city, like he's like, they all, most people who were healed, most people who were fed at the 5,000, most of them did not follow Jesus. Why? Because they wanted the miracle without the message. Let me say that again. They wanted the miracle without the message. And if you reject the message, you reject the messenger. Right. We live in a world today where people will gladly take the blessings of Jesus. They just don't want Jesus. True. People will gladly take the blessings of Jesus. They just don't necessarily want Jesus. Right. And so uh, then what do we see with Jesus and his authority? We're going to see three and we're going to go really, really fast. Here we go. Number one, as uh, as the servant king, Jesus has all authority over the Old Testament law. As the servant king, Jesus has all authority over the Old Testament law. Look at these verses here. Uh, it says, Jesus was indignant. This, this goes back to verse 40. This, this man comes, right, with, uh, with leprosy. And it's really interesting. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus was indignant. So he reached out his hand, touched the man, I'm willing be clean, and immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. It's really fascinating. This is the only time where the word indignant is used of Jesus, 
And it seems like a really odd response. Like a man comes with leprosy and asked to be healed, and, and is, was Jesus put out? Like, was Jesus irritated? What does this word mean? So it's a fascinating word in Greek, and it's, it's, it's one of the only times in the whole New Testament it's used. And, and we don't have a direct translation in, in English, but it would be a combination of upset because of injustice combined with compassion. Upset because of injustice combined with compassion. So have you ever seen a situation that, that upset you because it was wrong and it upset you because no one was doing anything about it? Does that make sense? Have you ever seen a situation where it upset you, it made you angry because it was wrong and then you were upset because no one else would do anything about it and so it moves you to action? That's this word. That's this word. So what was it like to be a leper? Uh, To be a leper in that day meant that once you were confirmed as someone who had leprosy, you had to live outside of society. So you had to leave home because leprosy is extremely contagious. So you had to leave home and you were considered, according to the Old Testament law, unclean. It means you were a pariah. Right. And so you had to live outside. And so lepers would live together. It's where we get the concept of a leper colony. And so you had to live outside of the city, outside of the culture, and you could never see your family or friends again. And, and you, they had to scrounge for food. You couldn't grow food. You couldn't go in town to, to buy anything. You were completely ostracized from society. Not only that, but you had to carry a bell with you wherever you went, right? So picture like a cowbell, something loud. You had to carry a bell with you everywhere you went. And if someone was approaching you, you had to ring the bell and shout unclean, unclean, so that the person coming would know you had leprosy and they could stop. Now, can you imagine living most of your life like that? You have not seen your mom, your dad, your husband, your wife, your brother, your sister, you haven't seen your friends, you you have no idea where your food is going to come from, you've lost everything materially that you own, and now you live your life with a bell, and if someone is coming down the road and you see them, you have to ring and shout, unclean, unclean, so they can avoid you. This man has lived his life like that, under this Old Testament law, and Jesus comes And does what? Look at your Bible. Jesus comes and it makes him indignant. Why? It makes him angry because he knows the pain and suffering that this man has lived with. He's not mad at the man. He's mad at the suffering this man has had to endure. You you ever been mad at cancer? I have. You ever been... You ever been put out with congestive heart failure? I have. Jesus is indignant, not at the man, but at his suffering. And Jesus says, yes, I will heal you. And Jesus in that moment sends him to the priest to show that Jesus has authority over the Old Testament law and over this man's suffering that he has encountered his entire life. Jesus has authority. This is amazing. No one wanted to touch a leper because the leprosy would transfer to them. 
when he touches Jesus, Jesus' wholeness transfers to the leper. Do you see that? Let me say that again. No one would touch a leper because the leprosy would go from one hand to the other. When Jesus touches the leper, his wholeness goes from him into the leper. Isn't that wonderful, church? That's what happens. Jesus doesn't take upon the suffering. Jesus delivers the freedom. And so uh, Jesus, in that moment, is showing his superiority to the Old Testament law. Remember what he says in Matthew, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. Right? Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these rules and regulations. Uh, we see a second thing, and it's this, that Jesus has authority over the Old Testament law, but then we see that he has authority over the physical realm. That Jesus has authority over the physical realm. Look what it, look what it says there. It says, uh, so Jesus said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. So he took up his mat, and he walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Uh, We're reminded that Jesus has full authority over the physical realm. Uh, The book of Colossians, Paul says that that Jesus literally uh, holds creation together. He binds it together. It's it's beautiful language in the Greek. It actually deals with the atomic level. Like like at at the smallest, most basic level, Jesus is sustaining all of creation. Right, it's amazing. We're 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 on a planet that has uh, just enough oxygen and just enough nitrogen, and we're on a planet that's just far enough away from the sun, and on a planet that's spinning at just the right axis at just the right speed. Everything is just right for life, and Jesus holds it all together. Amen, church. And so He has all authority over the physical realm, and that includes our bodies. And can I say, when, when someone is at sick at the Dubnick house, you know what the first thing we do? We pray for healing. When, when I, I'm sharing the gospel with someone in, in Birmingham City Center and, and the Lord leads it on my heart or I encounter someone who asks for it, we pray for healing and we pray in faith and we believe God does it. But if God chooses to do, do otherwise, we have the faith to believe that he, he doesn't do what we wanted, not because he doesn't have authority, He does it because his ways are always better than our ways. Amen. The scripture says his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. And so we believe and we pray in faith. But but if not, then we believe God has something bigger and better taking place. But it doesn't mean he doesn't have complete authority over the physical realm. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, God whispers in our blessings but he shouts in our suffering. God whispers in our blessing, but he shouts in our suffering. The idea is this, that when we encounter times of suffering, remember what Paul said? Paul pleaded with the Lord three times to remove his, his, his thorn in the flesh, and the Lord said what? He said, no, because my strength is made perfect in what? Weakness, which means if I, if I want to experience the strength of Jesus, I'm going to have to sometimes be what? Be weak, right? And so, Lord, teach me not to moan about my weakness, but to embrace it so I can glory in your strength. And then finally, we see this, that Jesus has authority not only over the Old Testament and the physical realm, but Jesus has all authority over the spiritual realm. 
Jesus has all authority over the spiritual realm. We've, we've already seen it, but, but he says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. I don't say this because it's like a way of coping with not understanding why God doesn't heal the physical. I say this because I believe it's true, and that is the greatest miracle Jesus ever does is when he saves a man's soul. The greatest miracle Jesus ever does is when you see a woman who, uh, whose life was in shambles and who had tried everything and everyone to find answers, and she's miraculously saved and restored by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest miracle we ever encounter. In fact, if that's the only miracle we ever encounter, it's the only one we needed. Amen. I mean, to be saved from hell, death, and the grave, that is miraculous. Paul says it this way. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the definition of a miracle. He who knew no sin, the perfect Lord Jesus, he didn't just take my sin. He became my sin. Now, that moves me because I know my sin and you don't. I know how vile I am. The very thought that Jesus took my vileness upon him and in return, I became the righteousness of God. And so when I stand before God the Father, he sees Jesus as his son when he looks at me. And when he looks at you, when we know and love Jesus. And by the way, that doesn't start when we die and get to heaven. That starts the moment we give our life to Jesus. Amen. On your worst day, the day where you sin the worst, the Father sees Jesus. And on your best day, when you sin in pride because you had a really good day, he still sees Jesus. Amen. And that's the miracle that every person by God's grace, should have the opportunity to experience the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And these, Jesus, these are not easy topics. Even as I've shared, Lord, in my own family, for 25 years, I look at my beautiful niece and And I still have to pray, Lord, help me to believe this is best. So, Lord, we all have stories where we don't understand why you did something or why you didn't. But would you help us to believe that in all things you are good, that in all things you love us, and Jesus Whenever we begin to question that, would you point us back to the cross? For Jesus, we only need to look at you on the cross for our sins to be reminded that you are good, that you are loving. Jesus, help us to believe in the miraculous. Help us to to expect the miraculous. But Lord, even above that, help us to trust in your perfect will whatever that might be. 
And Jesus, just pray that if there might be one here this morning, Lord, who's never trusted in you for the forgiveness of sin, Jesus, that is our greatest need. Jesus, you died on the cross and rose from the grave. And Jesus, if we will say sorry to you and and ask you to forgive us of our sins and to come into our life and change us, just like the beautiful way you did that for Sue, you will do that for us. So Jesus, I pray if anyone here today needs to do that, that they would call out to you, Jesus, and ask for your forgiveness and ask that you might come into their life and change them and restore them. Jesus, thank you that you are the miracle-working, all-authoritative, all-powerful, loving Savior. We praise you, and we exalt your name together, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I know we, we say it every Sunday, but in all sincerity, if you need someone